Hello and welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm your host and creator of the Head First Podcast and the Head First Instagram page, which you can find using the handle Head First Zero. This podcast is here to bring you all things psychology and mental health, so check out the other episodes if you have an interest in psychology and in mental health. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, who are a mental health company who do counseling and psychotherapy, as well as corporate psychology services. So I work within their clinical team. If you have any questions regarding the services that I provide or the services that Spectrum provide, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie or contact me through my Instagram page. So in this episode, I'm gonna be covering the psychology of making dietary changes and what we're missing when it comes to nutrition interventions. So I'm currently completing my doctorate in health psychology And one of my favorite areas of research is the relationship between mental and physical health. So today's episode is probably the topic that I'm most passionate about. It's the area that I'm doing my doctorate in, and it is the psychology of health-related behavior change. And that includes how and why psychology is important when it comes to changing our diets. I'm pretty sure anyone who's tuned into this um, at some point has probably tried to make dietary changes, whether it's eating less takeaways or controlling your portion sizes, giving up chocolate... I don't know, trying to eat more fruit and veg maybe. And the reasons, of course, range from um, appearance-related reasons to health-related reasons and everything in between. But whatever it is, I think at some point, most people will have maybe made some effort to change their dietary pattern. I think a big chunk of what I'll be speaking about will be related to weight loss because obviously obesity is one of the huge issues right now. And many dietary changes that people kind of make are related to weight loss or health outcomes. So maybe just be aware of that as I go on. The reason I love to speak about this issue in particular is that a huge percentage of dietary interventions don't work. And when I say don't work, what I mean is the changes that are made in the short term, for example, aren't generally well maintained. And we see this from the stats quoted a lot. We see it quoted a lot, especially on social media. And depending on where you get your figures from, it's around 70 to 95% of either dieting or weight loss interventions that do not work in the long term. That means your chances of successfully maintaining um, your changes The way dietary interventions are delivered now is about 5 to 30%. And I think the key piece of what I've mentioned there is it's the way they're delivered now or the way that they've traditionally been delivered. Because I guess my beliefs are, and, and based on the evidence that we have, that there are different factors contributing to the success rate of dietary change. And one of those factors is psychology. And maybe not just psychology, but things that are manageable and changeable in psychology. So imagine going to your doctor for a treatment for an issue that you're having and the doctor comes back to you and they say they have a treatment and it works 5 to 30% of the time. I'm sure that most people would be pretty terrified or or at least kind of not that hopeful if they were going to try it. But unfortunately, that's the success rate of dietary interventions at the moment, which is, is pretty terrifying. So that's what I'll be covering today, the kind of psychology of behavior change some of the psychological factors that might explain, um, again, it's not for everybody, but it it could be a a pretty reasonable explanation as to why nutrition interventions aren't working that well at the moment. Another aspect that I do want to cover, but won't have time in this episode, just so people know, is how like identity and morality and our social roles impact our eating behavior too. But I'll save that for another day because I, I won't have time in this podcast alone. But before we get into the kind of ins and outs of, of this for the podcast, 
I'm gonna give you some kind of background which is fundamental in understanding why psychology is important in relation to making changes. So firstly, we need to kind of realize that the body and mind are very much linked. They're not separate. And we know this for a few reasons, but I'll explain some that kind of might hit home with people that, that people might identify with. The entire premise of health psychology is that our mind's health and our body's health are linked. If you look at anxiety or stress as an example, it has very real physical symptoms. Like for some people, it could be shaking or trembling, it could be digestion issues. If you've ever felt nervous about something and your tummy feels upset, um, that would be an example of how the body and mind interact. Some people, when they're stressed, have flare-ups um, that could result in something like a skin irritation. You have, of course, things like increased heart rate. All of these physical issues um, stemming from psychology. So psychology can have a physical and, and very behavioral response. They actually did some cool research on the impact of stress and wound healing, where people who were highly stressed took far longer to heal from a cut compared to those who were less stressed. In other studies on sleep, for example, uh, anxiety and stress can contribute to changes in the brainwave patterns when you're asleep. Um, if you look at what is one of the primary evidence-based treatments for IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, there are psychological interventions. Um, one of the best ways of um, reducing chronic pain symptoms is psychological interventions. So these are all examples of how mental health and psychology can be played out in real physical symptoms and of course the other way around which shows us the kind of very clear link between your mind and your body similarly the things that we eat um, can improve our brain health exercise can promote positive brain health um, meaning that the behaviors we engage in can impact our brain too so even experiencing physical health issues um, is a risk factor for developing mental health issues so it's very obvious that the link is bi-directional the mind impacts the body, the body impacts the mind. They're very much connected. Now, I want you to consider how emotions and feelings impact behavior too. And when you're listening to these examples, remember that eating is also a behavior. Um, so I have a few examples that, that I wanted to kind of cover. Think about someone who smokes. And if you know somebody who smokes, when are they maybe most likely to smoke? Well, one is, is in the morning. So after a period of like restriction or withdrawal, and the second one is when they're stressed or emotional. Now, maybe you don't know, but I certainly have heard of the stereotype of someone being stressed and feeling like they need to smoke. The feeling or the emotion can drive the urge to do that behavior. This example can also be used with drinking alcohol. So when someone feels, um, when someone's feeling down or bad, maybe something difficult happened or you're going through something, there's kind of that idea that you can have a drink to kind of take the edge off. Again, the feeling so feeling stressed or down can drive that behavior. If you look at when someone feels lonely, they might turn to social media, they might turn to a dating app, they might spend more time on their phone in order to potentially try and feel that need. So the feeling of, of loneliness or maybe lack of connection can drive that behavior, can drive us to, to do certain things. And food or eating behavior is pretty similar. Of course, we don't need alcohol or, or need nicotine or our phones to, to be alive. But we do need food, which makes it slightly different. So sometimes um, what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is that food and eating behavior can be driven by psychological factors like feelings or emotions. Um, what I want to, I guess, get across here is that eating is a behavior too. And psychology is the study of the mind and behavior. So if you want to fully understand and address an eating issue that stems from psychology, 
and you want to make changes to that behavior, it's important to understand the psychology behind it. Psychology contributes to so many behaviors because the underlying factors are often psychological. For example, alcohol issues would generally be referred to a psychologist. Smoking or, or drug use, psychologist. Eating disorders even, psychologist. However, when it's not enough to be diagnosed with, for example, an illness or, or a disorder or a clinical issue, if, they, if you don't reach the kind of clinical threshold to be diagnosed with something, we seem to just totally forget about psychology. That's why I really believe that nutrition and psychology need to work together because behavior change involves psychology. If psychology can address like such a serious issue on the scale as, as clinically diagnosed eating disorders, it can absolutely certainly support somebody in making behavior change in relation to their nutrition, even if they don't meet that kind of criteria because eating is still a behavior. And psychology is the study of behavior and the mind. To me, it seems quite ludicrous to ignore its importance. Um, I think one of the important concepts to grasp is that knowledge also doesn't predict behavior. Meaning that if you tell someone what to eat, or if you give them like a strict meal plan and tell them what to avoid, it doesn't work. Because having the knowledge itself doesn't mean you're automatically going to make those changes. And I'm sure lots of people will identify with this. You know, for example, that you might be overconsuming fast food or chocolate or sweets or alcohol, and you know that that's not particularly good for you. You know that maybe you should incorporate more fruit and veg and maybe cut down on some of those things. Um, so you know, like, you obviously know the fruit and vegetables are, are a good part of your diet. Now, obviously, it's not that simple. But for most people, it's not the total absence of knowledge that's the issue. It's something else. Because most people know generally what a healthy diet looks like. Well, an overall healthy diet, you know, fruit and veg, lean protein sources, fiber, you know, variety, everything in moderation, all those kind of general um, healthy dietary pattern rules, I guess. Of course, specialist needs come into play and, and different kind of factors like that. But that's the kind of basics of it. And then when we look at the, the issues that pop up for people when they come to, for example, someone like me or, or a dietitian, it's not, well, often, I guess, it's not, I don't know what I should be eating. It's more like, I can't stop eating. I binge when I'm at home. I binge after drinking or, or when I'm lonely. The weekends kill me. That's another one I hear an awful lot of. Um, and then the one that kind of irks me the most is, it's a good diet when I stick to it, but I can't stick to it. Now, my verdict on that is that any dietary pattern, if you can't adhere to it, um, is the wrong one for you or it's been delivered to you in the wrong way. Um, anyway, for most people, the issue, in my opinion, isn't the complete ignorance of what a healthy dietary pattern is. It's other factors like psychology. If you look at how public health interventions have been delivered over the past few decades, it's been information overload. We have food pyramids. I think we've had two food pyramids and um, we have the kind of five a day we have the traffic light system we have most of the government initiatives that are saying you know eat more fruit and veg let's start moving more but it, it's not supporting people in how to make that change how do you go from eating the way you're eating now to eating maybe in a more um, sustainable way in line with your lifestyle that will lead to better health outcomes so it's kind of bridging that gap and like I said, information doesn't predict behavior. So telling people what a healthy dietary pattern looks like 
just hasn't worked. And I guess one of the reasons why, and, and one of the reasons I, I guess I'm making this podcast is that it so rarely includes psychology. And obviously the other issue that it doesn't address is the food environment. But again, that's for another podcast. But I think the psychological aspect is so, so important and, and people kind of don't even see it really right now. Now you might think that even people who struggle with their eating might be lacking maybe motivation or willpower. You might even think that about yourself. And, and I've certainly had those thoughts about myself telling myself that I'll start on Monday or, um, you know, once I do my food shop, then I'll start. Or um, I'm not that motivated right now, but, you know, I'll maybe in the new year or maybe um, after X happens, maybe after I'm finished this work project, then I'll get my life back in shape. And that's when I'll kind of start again. And I've definitely told myself that numerous times, maybe up until I, I started studying this field so much. The truth is that the rise in obesity rates are not explained by willpower or motivation. They're only one part of what's necessary for changing your behavior. I think there's so many factors that we need to consider when we think about people who are struggling with their weight. Um, I would say that it's pretty much entirely reductionist to think that it's down to willpower. And, you know, thinking as if willpower solely dictates someone's food choices is a bit simplistic because it doesn't. If you look at the obesity numbers over the past couple of decades, it, it, it is still increasing. Um, and for the willpower kind of theory to be true, that would mean that people's willpower and motivation is just reducing, but it's not. Because if people's willpower and motivation has been decreasing, it'll have decreased in other areas too. Like motivation to go to the gym or do your job or just look after your life's responsibilities. And that doesn't make any sense because willpower and, and motivation is necessary for all those different aspects and that hasn't changed. And the willpower and motivation theory suggests that you know, if, if you're going to say that it's changed just solely in relation to food, it's, it's pretty simply incorrect because we would see the impact of decreased motivation and willpower across the board, which we don't see. So there's no evidence to suggest that the widespread increase in obesity rates are just a result of willpower alone. And of course, being motivated and having kind of um, self-regulation um, strategies is important, but it's only one part of the puzzle. And it's likely that there's going to be so many other reasons why. Um, and I guess that's that's something um, a psychologist who works with eating behaviors could maybe identify or, or help you um, identify for yourself and, and maybe support you in, in making that progress. Now, hopefully, by this point, I know I've gone on a bit. Um, hopefully, by this point, you realize that psychology is such a huge factor to consider when addressing behavior change because eating is a behavior the same as all of those other examples are behaviors. And to explain that behavior, um, psychology is important to understand. But I want you also to understand how it works and why it's important to consider. So firstly, think of the common one that I guess many people, if they have an interest in this field, will identify with. So emotional or stress eating. Firstly, stress does a couple of things in terms of impacting our eating behavior. It can impact the frontal lobes of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and that part of the brain is responsible for self-regulation and um, decision-making and, and things like impulse control. Um, stress can also impact the fullness and, and hunger signals being received by the brain uh, properly or accurately. Um, if you move on to emotional eating, it might be a certain situation when you're sad or lonely or even happy. Um, and you overeat to maybe feel better in the short term or overeat to maybe celebrate and, and 
that can actually lead to feelings of kind of guilt or shame or, or lead you to be kind of very self-critical, which kind of, again, fuels that cycle of emotional eating. So why is psychology important for things like stress and emotional eating? Because if emotions or feelings are driving the behavior, it's important to address the underlying cause. So I used this example recently on an Instagram Live, but the psychological factors can be expressed in a host of ways. For example, one person who's feeling sad or lonely might um, drink alcohol, one might smoke, one might use drugs, one might, might be a gambler, um, one might scroll their phone for hours, uh, one might kind of pull away from their, their friends or their social circle, and somebody else might use food. The interesting thing is that for all of these behaviours, bar food, someone would see a psychologist. For every single behaviour that I've just mentioned, except for food, someone would generally see a psychologist. But when it involves changes around food, they seem to forget about psychology. You go to your personal trainer or your nutritionist or your dietitian. Now, I don't want other health professionals thinking that I'm having a swipe here because I'm absolutely not. Other health professionals are, are so, so important in this because psychologists aren't trained in the ins and outs of nutrition. What I'm saying is the best people to help with the behavioral change aspect of things are psychologists in tandem with a dietitian or nutrition professional. I really, really believe that we need to work together more closely because as far as I'm aware, apart from psychologists and obviously me being a health psychologist in training, there's no other healthcare professionals that are trained to doctorate levels specifically on behavior change. So working together to bring the nutritional aspect and the psychology together is, uh, well, in my verdict, um, absolutely crucial. I would hope that, that people would agree with that and based on these examples would, would maybe see that. And if you're someone who has previously tried to make changes before and struggled with it, it's, it's certainly worth considering the psychological factors too. And maybe speaking with a psychologist um, about how we might be able to help support you because I think it, it doesn't mean that you have a mental health issue to go to a psychologist for something. It's often about self-development or, or promoting your own health. And if a psychologist can understand behavior and understand your behavior and maybe help you understand it, it gives you the best chance at, at making those changes. You don't have to have a clinically diagnosable issue in order to see a psychologist to help um, make those changes. So I guess I want the take home to be psychological factors are often, like really often, the underlying drivers of a behavior. Sometimes they're expressed through eating behaviors as a coping strategy. And if this is the case, it's important to address the underlying cause and not to forget about psychology just because it's related to food and just because maybe, I don't know, your PT claims that they know how to manage binge eating. Let me tell you that they don't. Um, there are other psychological factors outside of emotions and feelings that can drive behaviors too. One thing I hear a lot of is how hard it is to break habits. Um, now, I've done a past uh, post on this on my Instagram, but I'll explain it here again. Imagine you're at the edge of a field of really long grass, taller than you are, and there's one really clear pathway through the center of the field to get to the other side. That pathway is your old habit. It's the easiest way. You've walked it many times before. And trying to build a new habit in the brain is like trying to hack your way through the long grass to make a new pathway. It takes time, it takes a lot of time, it takes motivation and hard work. And sometimes when things are really tough and you've had a bad day, you just prefer going the old path, it's easier. You're not going to regularly use the new pathway until the new pathway is bigger and better than the old pathway. Once you do end up in a place where that new pathway is completed, 
It doesn't mean the old pathway just disappears. You might still use it in odd time, but it's rare. It becomes overgrown and your main pathway is the new one that you look to um, when, when, things are, when, things, when things are difficult. So you use your main pathway when your new pathway is, is bigger and better and, and stronger than your old pathway. And that's the same for habits. So when people have bad habits, in order to address them, it could be important to understand them and why they've happened and how best to create a new habit. In addition to that, one of the key factors that push people back down the old pathway, I guess, is, is strong emotions like your stress, your tiredness, your sadness, anxiety. All of these emotions can make it hard to resist an old habit or an old coping strategy. The thing is, um, we hear that we can form these new habits and there are lots of self-proclaimed experts out there on how to create new habits um, because they've read one book. But what it's easy to forget is that some of the things that make it, it hard to form new habits and make old habits more appealing are psychological factors. For example, you want your new habit to be going to the gym after work, for example. But then when work is stressful and creates anxiety for you, it could leave you susceptible to going back to your old habits where you feel safe and you know that in the short term that might help. It's a lot easier to go down your old pathway when you're tired and stressed um, rather than trying to hack away at your at your new pathway. So this is just one example. It's It's of, of why I guess it's so important to address the psychological factors because they're one of the significant barriers to forming a new habit or reinforcing your old habits. When we look at the behavior change techniques from, from the scientific research, I think there's 80 or 90 of them. Pretty much all of them involve some aspect of psychology. So when we're working on changing bad habits, again, remember how important it is to consider those psychological factors because without addressing the psychology, behavior change is going to be difficult. And I guess that's why we see that kind of 5 to 30% success rate in nutrition interventions. Another example of the importance of psychology would be someone's past experiences of food. So I'll go through two quick examples. And again, these are things that I guess would never have, have dawned on me until I, I started learning more about this topic. Let's take someone who may have grown up in a poor family with lots of siblings and really, really struggled for food. And when they were fed, it would be a case of Get as much as you can right now or you'll starve. Now that person grows up, gets a job and has autonomy over what they eat. But for years it was ingrained in them that food was scarce and food meant survival and food meant safety. And that might explain why someone maybe overeats when they've never had to regulate their food before or even had a choice in what they ate. And when food meant survival and food meant safety. So another example someone whose, whose parents went through a divorce when they were a teenager and at the time they weren't getting their needs met from their parents so they might have learned to meet those needs with food food was something that was associated with comfort food was something that eased the level of distress that they were experiencing and that person may not have learned another way to cope or manage with that distress and this might have continued in, in into their lives um, and they've and they've learned to manage through food they may not have addressed any of the psychological distress or the tension that is still lying there dormant for them all these years later. So now when they experience this, the maybe similar distress or even other kinds of distress, they know that food is their coping strategy. And just to be clear, 
these psychological factors can be expressed through other ways too. They're not always resultant in, in difficulty with food. But sometimes um, it might be the barrier to someone changing their behaviour is understanding where the behaviour came from in the first place. So these are just some examples of how psychological factors play out in relation to food and making changes. There are plenty of examples that I, I could have chose from. and The list is by no means exhaustive. Like I said, even that list there, like even the, the two examples, they can be played out in different ways too. They can be played out in different coping strategies. The point I'm making here is that there may be underlying drivers of behaviours that maybe you haven't even considered. Whether you are a health professional or whether you're just someone who wants to make dietary changes, there are factors that are underlying your behaviour. There could be factors underlying your behaviour that might have an impact on your ability to make those changes. I think... The hard thing for me as someone who, who works with issues related to behavior change is it, it seems bizarre to see a psychologist. If someone said they want to improve their diet, I don't think anyone in the history of the world would consider going to a psychologist first. But a psychologist, especially for someone who has maybe tried to change before and has had difficulties, would be ideal. For me, I think without addressing the underlying factors, there are limits to how much progress someone can achieve. Because even if someone does manage to alter their diet, those underlying difficulties could be expressed somewhere else. And of course, again, to reiterate, nutritional professionals are so important and have a huge role to play. But sometimes difficulties go beyond that. Some nutritional professionals will be further trained and will be able to offer more. Some won't. Some health professionals, unfortunately, won't even see that further support might be necessary or that the issues might be outside of their scope of practice. And I think regardless of further training, I think psychology should be considered as, as part of the frontline um, treatment for, for dietary changes, even if someone doesn't have an eating disorder, because it's still on the same spectrum. You don't have to meet the clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder to get support from a psychologist. If it's the psychological side that is the main driver or contributor behind that behavior, then addressing it is definitely important. It's like when people come to me um, in relation to stress. So if stress was the reason why, for example, you're not sleeping, would you think it's best to buy new pillows and buy some lavender spray? Or do you think it's a better option to maybe get help managing the stress? Well, get help managing the stress because that's the thing that's driving the behavior. Similarly, if you drink alcohol to cope with emotional pain, do you think that problem will go away without addressing the reason why it's happening? Because I feel like it's the same with food. If the underlying factor is psychological and that's driving the behavior, then I'd highly suggest addressing it or at least trying to understand it with a professional who can maybe flesh it out with you. So I guess one of the things that I think we're missing in nutrition interventions is addressing the psychological aspects. When we look at the success rates of dietary interventions, it's, it's really evident that something is missing. And one of those major players is psychological. So if you are looking to address nutrition or looking to change your diet, I think it's important to remember that what drives eating behaviors can be psychological. And to have the best opportunity to make those changes, it's important to work with someone who can cater for these needs. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Joe O'Brien. If you want to work with me, you can get in touch with me on Instagram, which is at headfirst with a zero at the end. Or you can email me, which is joeobrien 
at mentalhealth.ie. I really hope you got something from today. It's the area I'm most passionate about. So any thoughts, opinions, or feedback, feel free to get in touch. Thanks for tuning in.